Hello, this is the Pod Goblin's Hat, a podcast about the Moomins. This is episode eight, which is about meeting royalty, making friends with ghosts, and what the ocean can offer you. I'm Nina, a person who despises all monarchs and everything they stand for. And I'm Dave, a person who wants to abolish all monarchies and the systems they create and sustain. And we're reading all the way through two of A. Janssen's Moomin's books together. It's the first time for me. Whereas if I wrote my memoirs or my exploits, the Moomin's would be featured pretty regularly. We're starting by reading the storybooks for children in order of publication, and eventually we will cover all of Tove Janssen's Moomin stories. And today we're reading the second half of the memoirs of Moomin Papa, or the exploits of Moomin Papa if you're Nina, because we're reading the two different versions of the book. Right. And we'll discuss the differences and similarities between them as they come up. Dave's reading memoirs, I'm reading exploits, so the synopsis you're getting is of exploits, but Dave is going to interrupt every time there is a major difference in the versions. So, to the synopsis mobile. Uh, in a minute, we haven't reminded people of our themes. To the theme mobile. <laughs> The theme we're reading all the books through is relationships. And the theme we're reading this book through is memoir. And now, Nina, would you like to begin your synopsis? So we left it on a cliffhanger last time. Our brave adventurers had been out at sea on the ocean Oxtra and they thought they'd sighted land, but they had in fact sighted Edward the Booble. And Edward the Booble was really angry. And then Moomin Papa in the flash forward to the modern day said that's how you write the end of a chapter you always put a cliffhanger Moomin Papa has one of his strokes of genius and decides to give him the three clouds that they had collected for him to sit on and luxuriate on because Edward the Booble's main beef with them is that they made him sit in the river and they said it was a lovely soft sandy bank it was in fact all pebbly and so his feet and his bottom are sore they did know that they were doing that. It wasn't like it happened that the bottom no, no, of the bank knew. was spiky. <laughs> they knew what they were doing and they did it anyway. Yeah, so he really enjoys the clouds and they run away while he's enjoying the clouds so as not to incur any further wrath. They arrive in a land where there's loads of little huts and lots of little dry stone walls, although they can't see anything that's being kept in or out by the dry stone walls. They go up to one of the huts and knock on the door and there's a little girl in there and she's like, go away. I'm not allowed to talk to strangers and I'm not allowed to open the door until my mother comes home, which is very sensible if you're a child left home alone. Yes. However, they go, oh, don't worry. Just let us in. We're nice. We'll look at your throat because she claims to have a sore throat and she's got a red scarf wrapped around her neck. She is the Mimble's daughter. And she says her mum has gone out to the garden party but left her home because she's sick and maybe she's got tonsillitis and maybe she's got leprosy. She's got a lot of theories about what might be wrong with her. Hodgkins offers to look at her throat. He's like, it looks fine. And then she's like, oh, yeah, lol, that's just because I'm pretending because actually I was left home alone because I'm naughty. Uh, we're already discovering that the Mimble's daughter, like Moomin Papa, has a very flexible approach to the truth. An unreliable narrator within an unreliable narration. 
So they convince the Mimble's daughter to take them to the garden party. And they're like, won't your mum be cross, though, that we took you to the party when you're supposed to stay home and be punished? And she's like, ah, no, my mum will have forgotten. She'll just be, like, happy to see me. The garden party is being held for the king's centennial. Although the king, for some reason, is called an autocrat, which I think is quite nice, actually. Yes. It reminds us that a king is not a jolly thing, but a system. Although Moomin Papa is very royalist and like very thrilled at the idea of meeting a real king. Papa the monarchist, for sure. Go to the garden party, at which point they're like, it's the garden full of surprises. And they're like, (laughs) what surprises? And the Mimble's like, you'll see, see you later. And off she goes. So first there's a maze. And inside the maze, the first thing they find is like an animatronic spider that's really scary. And then a sign that says, ha scared, weren't you? And a number of other surprises like this, where a surprising thing happens and then there's a sign that goes, well, you didn't expect that. Yeah, the autocrat is that kind of king. Yeah. Mischievous, relatively benign-ish. Yeah. Not interested particularly in being horrible. Mm. But very happy to be upsetting his subjects, <laughs> tricking them. He says he likes surprises, but only when he organises them. Yeah, very low opinion of his subjects, like all kings. Yeah. My apologies to any king. No. No, actually, just uh, abolish yourself. <laughs> Abdicate now. So they make their way through this garden of surprises. Lots of things are very surprising. They have a little boat excursion and there's loads of splashes of water. And then the sign says... You're wet, aren't you? Or something. (laughs) (laughs) And then they see a bull and they're like, aha, I've got the hang of this now. It's not a real bull. And they go and bother the bull and then the bull is real. And they're like, oh no, and run away. It's a double fake out. And also this party is a sort of Easter egg hunt lottery thing. So there's loads of hidden eggs with numbers on them and everybody finds a different amount. So Hodgkins is really good at finding them. And Moomin Papa's pretty good at finding them. The Jockster, not so much. And the Nibbling keeps eating them. So then they come to the prize drawer when all the eggs have been found. And the king asks for everybody to call him Daddy Jones. Very king-like behaviour. I mean, (laughs) posh people always have very strange ways they like to be addressed by their subjects. Basically, Moomin Papa wants to bow and scrape to him and he won't really let him. He's like, oh, stop calling me your Royal Highness Majesty. Just call me Daddy Jones. (laughs) It's a bit weird. The king explains that this is like a really great lottery because everybody gets exactly what they deserve. He hid the eggs in different categories of places and the (laughs) prizes associated with those eggs are linked to the kind of place where they were found. So they're really easy eggs to find, like just in the grass, which, you know, people who weren't really looking were able to find. Well, those aren't very important prizes. They're mainly edible. But then, like, the really ingenious and logical places to look for an egg lead you to, like, really useful prizes like fret saws, etc. And then the really imaginative places give you really imaginative, useless prizes and guess who like. gets the imaginative prizes, everybody? <laughs> Moomin Papa with his brilliant imagination. Yeah. And crucially, he is not upset at the uselessness of the prizes. No, he loves them. He loves them. It's a bit like when stuff washes up on the beach. He just, like, loves it. It's like a beachcombing treasure hunt for him. This is where... 
his rosebud moment, the Meerschaum tram. Yes. It's one of the presents that he gets. He also gets a preserved smoke ring, the handle for an organ grinder's box, a champagne whisk. Everyone's really happy with the prizes they get. Oh, the one imaginative prize egg that Moomin Papa doesn't find, number 999, is found by the Mimble's daughter. The Mimble's daughter, yes, is the other person who gets the imagination prize. And that is a kiss of Daddy Jones's nose. Yeah, a little bit dodgy. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that she shares the same foibles the same qualities as Moomin Papa. They're, they're the ones that get the imaginative prizes because they're the, both the ones whose imaginations we cannot trust. So then it's just like a normal party. There's food and drinks and we meet the Mimble and her many kiddies. The jockster takes quite a shine to the Mimble and it says that she is very round, that she is like made of all round shapes. Yeah. She apparently is very attractive to jocksters. I suspect also possibly to two <laughs> The muddler has a go on the merry-go-round, but he doesn't just go one time round. He just sits there and stays there for a really long time, feeling sick, whereas the mimble seems to really like the merry-go-round. She collects as many of her children as fit on her broad lap and mounts one of the red carriages drawn by a dapple grey horse, and the jockster goes, what a remarkable lady. Yep. <laughs> meet cute yeah. is happening here. There are several meet cutes in this book. It's very strongly suggested at this point that the Mimble is going to become Snufkin's mother. Yeah. They find the nibbling again, who has been sort of like curled up in a hole for a while. And they ask him why he hasn't gone and claimed his prizes. And he's like, what prizes? And they're like, the eggs. You had a dozen. They were associated with prizes. And he's like, I didn't know what to do with them. I just ate them. And Moomin Papa's often wondered since what the Nibbling's prizes would have been and who got them when he didn't ask for them, which is a good question that I want to come back to later. So then our intrepid adventurers settle in the land of the autocrat. Soon Hodgkins gets a telegraph from the king saying, I want you to be the royal inventor, basically. And this makes Moomin Papa feel really left out because he hasn't picked out to be a special royal something. Right. And they're supposed to be outlaws. Yeah, so the jocks is not super into it either. And so Moomin Papa kicks a stone around and pretends it's the king until he suddenly remembers he's a royalist. God save the king, <laughs> I said quickly three times to myself. So they decide to go on an expedition to colonise a heart-shaped island two nautical miles north of Daddy Jones's kingdom. It won't be surprising to listeners to hear that in my notes it says founding a colony and then an unhappy face. The Mimble's daughter comes with them because I guess she's a bit over washing all her brothers and sisters. She's got a very eldest daughter energy. She has. She's got a lot of responsibility for her siblings. She wants to like go away and have an adventure and only come back when she's all grown up and impressive. They all go off to the island. They each make homes in different parts of the island they send the nibbling home on the packet boat. They have conversations about when shall we write the laws and what are laws for and what are colonies for and should we all be bickering and should we wait for something really bad to happen and then make a law about it? So there's all this <laughs> conversation about what a colony should be. But basically they're hanging out. 
They're not really doing very much of anything else. And anybody that also picks up on the word colony in the same way as I do and finds that distasteful, at least we can reassure ourselves that there aren't any people on this island. Mm, well, there's someone. We'll see. But there are no living people on this island. No. So it's got really big Finn family Moomin Troll vibes, this bit. Yep. Almost as if Moomin Papa is taking some inspiration from the events of the past book. I think you could definitely say that about nearly everything in this book. Moomin Papa gets the Moomin house off the Ocean Oxtra and moves it onto the island. So now he's living in the Moomin house on the island. I think in my book, his Moomin house wasn't on it. Yeah. He takes the house that's there and expands on it. So he's got a base house from Hodgkins in my book and he then makes it into his own Moomin house. He makes it into a Moomin house with a spiral staircase with... 19 steps. So he takes himself off to bed on the first night. There's already been some talk of, oh, did I see something moving in the bushes? Something swishing and swaying and uh, floating. And then Moomin Papa hears some footsteps on the stairs. And so very sensibly, he dives under the bed, not because he's scared, just because it's a sensible (laughs) thing to do. Dives under the bed and listens to all 19 steps creak. And then the noises stop outside the door and Moomin Papa thinks it's outside the door. And then the room suddenly grows cold and the ghost, which is what it is, does a sneeze. And so then suddenly Moomin Papa's not so scared of the ghost anymore. He comes out and they have a little chat. The ghost is very invested in being scary. Yeah. He says things like, a bleak night of fate resounding with the horrible wails of the phantoms of the gorge. He's like a kind of totem for a teenage goth. Yes. The way that he talks is very Edgar Allan Poe. Well, her clothes are blacker than the blackest heart, and her face is whiter than the snows of heart. She wears Dr. Martens and a heavy cross, but on the inside... She's a happy girl. Moomin Papa asks him to keep it down. He doesn't really keep it down. He's not terrifying them because they know who he is, but he's not letting anyone sleep. And this goes on for like days and days and days. And every night at midnight, he's having a little party. He's found a bit of old chain in Hodgkins' tools. <laughs> he's like, he's not had anyone to haunt. He's been on this <laughs> island on his own. And suddenly he's got some people to scare. Yeah, he's painted a skull and crossbones and the word poison on the muddler's tin. Right. And the muddler's very offended by that. Yeah. So eventually they do what all companies of men on colonialist adventures do, which is they call a meeting. So they write to the ghost. They say, Dear Island Ghost, for obvious reasons, a special ghost council will be held at this place on Tuesday before sunset. Members' complaints will be attended to. Bring no chains, please. Board of the Royal Colony. The ghost writes back. <laughs> the hour of fate is nearing. Tuesday, but at midnight, when the hounds of death are howling in the lonely wilderness, vain creatures hide your snouts in the cold earth that rings with the heavy tread of the invisible. Your fate is written in blood on the walls of the chambers of terror. I'll bring my chain if I like. So he does come to their meeting at midnight. He comes with all of his spooky hollow howls and his green light. <laughs> And he goes, I have come, etc. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast has become a Nina Reads Out the Ghost Quotes <laughs> podcast. There should be no more moving content, just, no, just ghosts. the ghosts. 
They ask him to like keep it down a bit and could he let them have some sleep? Yeah, I do like the ghost, but I also do sympathise with their feelings. The ghost is like the terrible neighbour that you've got to put up with. The ghost complains that like, nobody's scared of him and it's really sad. And Hodgkins has some ideas for him, some tips, teaches him some like new spooky things. And he says, well, why don't you just be part of the kingdom? Why don't you just assimilate into our country? then you won't be lonely anymore. <laughs> There'll be loads of people to haunt. And the ghost is like, great. The ghost moves into a box in Moomin Papa's house and takes up all kinds of textile-based crafts. He gets really into knitting and embroidery and stuff, but always with like a skull and crossbones motif. This is what I mean about him being like a goth, because yeah. goths are very nice people who often do knitting. Yeah. Don't worry, Mom. Don't worry, Dad The hours that I spend alone Are the happiest I've ever had That's what she'd say If she ever spoke to you but it's something she can never do Cause it's only by herself That she'll find out what makes her different from the rest Well, her clothes are blacker than the blackest So in my notes, I've put Moomin Troll channeling his inner Nina in terms of notes. I don't know which bit you mean. The ghost is fine, said Moomin Troll, who was lying with his eider down up to his ears. You should keep it. But all those sad feelings, I think, are a bit unnecessary. It's all so long. <laughs> I haven't got that bit. That's a memoirs exclusive. Long, cried Moomin Papa, hurt. What do you mean, Long? Memoirs should have some sad parts. All memoirs have them. I was having a crisis. <laughs> and uh, it just reminded me a little bit of Nina's approach to this podcast uh, in terms of keeping us on track, having no diversions. And I kind of like that. Yeah. So it turns out there's maybe a lot more differences. Yeah. And maybe he didn't even have that melancholy existential crisis before the ghost joined him on the island in your book as well. No, he does. He kicks the stone around and he feels left out. Yeah, but I feel like it might have been more emphasised in this. Yeah. I think there's a bit earlier on as well in like chapter one or two where the melancholy of Moomin Papa is leaned into maybe in my version more than in yours. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes. With future books, the melancholy of Moomin Papa may come more to a fore and uh, maybe Tuve didn't fully know that when she originally wrote the memoirs. Maybe. I mean, he's quite a depressive character, isn't he? He is. Overly confident, but low-key a depressive, yeah. Like me. I um, wasn't going to say it! <laughs> uh, but I felt you thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't take that as an actual description of Nina. She is not overly confident. She is correctly confident. <laughs> 
so this half of the memoir is written in a way that like every chapter is a distinct adventure so that last chapter was like all the like ghost on the island chapter and now this new chapter is about the amphibian which is the new name of the ocean oxtra which has been sort of augmented and improved by Hodgkins to go on the land and go in water and go in the air. Yeah, and you may remember from the first half of the book, Hodgkins has wanted to make a boat that could fly for a while. The clouds have already made his dreams come true. Yeah. But that is a kind of metaphysical and magical way of making a boat fly. Yeah, he wants it to work mechanically and he's managed. So we have a really big unveiling party with the autocrat, a.k.a. Daddy Jones, and, like, basically everybody else in the kingdom, including the Mimble and the kiddies, and apparently there's, like, a couple more kiddies. One of them is called Little Mai. Yes, the new child has been born, Little Mai. And the reason she's called Mai is because she's the smallest in existence, it says. (laughs) And I guess that's Mai is short for Mimble. Yeah, This is the birth of a very significant character. And this is the first time I've met her. But this is like her prototype. And so I don't think she's fully Mai-ish. She's a little baby right now. She's starting her Mai-ishness, but she will come into her full Mai-icity in later books. So it's really lots of pomp and circumstance. There's a big velvet throw over the Ocean Oxtra to hide it from view. Hodgkins wants to like check that the fan's working or the exhaust or something. Turns out somebody, it could be Little Y, it could be someone else, has stuffed the breakfast porridge inside the exhaust pipe and so it sort of gets blown out. And then our brave adventurers drop the curtain, they climb into the now amphibian rather than the Ocean Oxtra. So that's the Royal Outlaw Colony, plus the Mimble and her kiddies, minus the Muddler, importantly, because he will be doing something else during this adventure. Start the engine, the amphibian flies and then splashes into the water and then goes underwater like a submarine. And at first they don't see any fish and they wonder if the fish are sleeping and Hodgkins is like, no, we just scared them by splashing in, which, you know, fair enough. So they sit still for a while and then all the sea creatures come and have a look. There's fishing frog and mermaids and sea spooks and serpents and fish. And all of these creatures have got lamps on their heads, but none of them are lit. And we wonder if maybe they're out of batteries or something or out of matches. Whereas the lights inside the amphibian are lit and they're like blaring out and all the sea creatures are having a little conversation about how that's really quite unwise and why have they got all their lights on and what is this creature is it like a whale that swallowed a load of people well anyway it's very silly to have its light on and meanwhile the passengers are like why are they talking about our lights should be off like what are they are they stupid or something and then they say oh yeah it's because um when you got your light on you get eaten by the sea hound This is one of the big differences between the two texts. So in my text, what Tuve did was she removed the comedy from this scene. So you don't have all of those different animals talking to each other and talking about lights. What do you have? You just see them like around the boat. It's designed to be more scary. So you don't know what's going on and you're you're not getting this kind of comic chorus who are commenting on what's happening. Mm. This bit, I think you can make an argument for your book being better 
or for my book being better. If you like scary, then my book is better. If you like comedy, then your book is better. I think I would like my book, but maybe with your comedy added back in. Yeah, yeah. The other difference is my book has a picture of the sea hound. And my book does not. So in my book, each chapter has one of those letters with a picture in at the beginning and the first letter. The sea hound is in the O that starts this chapter. It does look quite scary. It is quite scary. It's obviously a hound. Sort of a lurcherish face. It's got very spiky teeth and a big eye. It's a scary version of a moomin creature, basically. You don't see its body. No. You don't know how big it is. So what we know is the sea hound attacks the amphibian. They decide to turn the lights out, but it's too late. The sea hound grabs the amphibian in its jaws and starts shaking them around. And so everything falls out of the cupboards, makes a really big mess. The Mimble loses track of her children and needs to count them again to make sure she hasn't lost any. So it's a really scary moment. But then they are saved by Edward the Booble again. The real hero of this story, I would contend. The real hero of the book, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Edward the Booble is cross with them. What's he cross about this time? Oh, he didn't get to go to the garden party. Is that it? Edward the Booble is always cross. Yeah. It's often about feeling left out. Yeah, I guess he's just been left behind. Maybe he was trying to go to the big unveiling of the amphibian and then there was nobody there and he felt left out. But he accidentally treads on the sea hound. And the sea hound, like, explodes. <laughs> yeah. There's just bits of it floating in the water. It's actually quite gory. The way the jockster describes it is, you've trodden the sea hound to a pulp. <laughs> so Edward the Booble feels bad about it and uh, goes wading away, looking deeply hurt. But everybody else is really happy about it. And all the creatures with their little lamps on their heads can switch them on now because it's safe because the sea hound is dead. And so they have like a wonderful underwater fireworks display. And it's very reminiscent of uh, what we know of the actual bottom of the sea, the dark places with all the strange yeah. fish with many lights. Yeah. So as they're coming back to the land of the autocrat, they find him like in a little <laughs> dinghy coming out to meet them. And they're like, it's the autocrat. <laughs> Do you think there can have been a revolution so early in the morning? There hasn't been a revolution. What has happened is that the muddler is getting married to a fuzzy and he's invited the Hemulilant and the whole colony of nibblings. And so obviously this is a huge crisis for the kingdom because the nibblings are just going to eat everything. And it's one of those like things whereby the muddler maybe has muddled up buttons all of the way through the, the this book. But once he falls in love, he's super organised. The invites are out to everybody. What, they've been gone for, what, a few hours? Yeah, they've literally got married as soon as they're like, oh, you like buttons. Oh, I like buttons. Let's get married. Yeah. The autocrat's annoyed that they've got married before the wedding ceremony. Yeah, he's arranged a wedding ceremony for them, but they just couldn't wait. And this is kind of a nice moment for Sniff in the current day. Yeah. Because he's like, where are the mothers? Indeed. Good question, Sniff. <laughs> The fuzzy seems really nice. They actually seem really well matched. Yeah, and it's interesting. Whilst the jockster looks exactly like Snufkin, Sniff is indeed a mixture of the fuzzy and the muddler. Yeah. Like, you don't get a Sniff without both those very differently looking creatures. Because it is an interspecies marriage. Yes, it is. They're both really into buttons and collecting stuff. Buttons is the <laughs> way to a fuzzy's heart. <laughs> 
But square cut or pear shape Buttons don't lose their shape Buttons are a fuzzy's best friend So the next day, the packet boat is due to arrive. It's a post boat. It's a smaller boat that would make regular trips between different places in Europe and in North America in like the 1800s with telegrams and post and parcels. And so there wasn't very much space for passengers. But if you need to get somewhere quicker because it'd wait for a passenger boat to fill up, you could go on the packet boat. It's a packet boat that they sent the nibbling away on like a few days ago. So the packet boat's coming nearer and they're like, oh, God. (laughs) The Hemulinam and the 7,000 nibblings are going to arrive. The king is not happy about the nibblings coming to eat his kingdom, but the royal outlaws are much more worried about the Hemulinam. Because she'll be making them do multiplication quizzes and stuff like that. The packet boat arrives, and everybody realises that the packet boat is far too small to contain 7,000 nibblings. And in fact... Only one nibbling hops off. And it's their nibbling, who they know. He's been sent back. Guess what? It's the nibbling that they know. None of the others (laughs) wanted to come to a wedding of someone they don't know. I mean, like weddings are a hassle to go to. Yeah. Weddings are lovely and wonderful. Celebrations of people's love that costs all of the guests lots of money and time to get to. So the Hemulin aunt sends her compliments and a letter and a present. Yeah, not even the Hemulin aunt comes. Yeah, she basically sends a letter saying, like, I'm really pleased that you're doing this boring grown-up thing of getting married. That's really great. However, me and the nibblings are having such a good time morning till night, 24-7, that we cannot possibly tear ourselves away from our quizzes and multiplication contests to come and see your wedding. The nibbling implies as well that they love this, that the, the nibblings do love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is not the Hemelin aunt kind of projecting. This is a, no, no, a no. beautiful marriage, if you like, of one way of being and another way of being. Do you like multiplication? Hodgkins asked cautiously. Enormously, replied the nibbling. The nibblings needed the Hemelin aunt. Yeah. The Hemelin aunt needed the nibblings. And they've made her their queen. So we've got another monarch in this story now. But this one seems to be one that was wanted by the people or the nibblings. There's two presents. There's a photograph of the Hemulin aunt dressed as a nibbling queen. Where is the picture, Tuva? I want a picture of that. Is there one in your book? Because there isn't in mine. No, I don't think so. It does sound like a hard picture to draw. I think what happens is if there's a hard picture to draw, she just says there's a picture of it in the book and then doesn't draw it. (laughs) I think that is what she does. So present number one is the picture, but present number two is the frame that is around the picture. And it's really glitzy. It's exactly what Sniff would be into. Yes. It's made of pure Spanish gold set with small roses of topaz and chrysolite in the corners. Small diamonds formed an inner fringe around the photograph. The back was all turquoises. The muddler does not have his son's attraction to gems, but in this half of the book, gems come into both Sniff's parents' lives They fall in love with those gems. And so maybe that is where Sniff's love for gems comes from. But they immediately talk about picking all the gems out of the frame, though. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) The gems are just pretty buttons to them. That was a lovely wedding. And we're nearly at the end of the story. Very relatable quote from Moomin Papa about this kind of time in, in one's life. I cannot stress enough the perils of your friends marrying or becoming court inventors. Ah, it's not in mine either, that line. You've got the better book. It's a great line, that. It is a great line. As somebody who is 41, 
who has had many of my friends get married and become court inventors. It is hard to be just an imaginative movement trying to write your memoirs and have adventures when everybody couples up and, and gets busy and can't see you. Beach At this point, we're very interested in the question Sniff raised, which was about where are the mothers and where are the women? Where are the women? And Moomin Troll asks... What about my mama? Isn't she going to come into this? And Moomin Papa's like, yes, right at the end. So it was a windy night on the island. They're all sitting around the porcelain stove. The muddler and the fuzzy are holding hands because that's what they always do. The mimble is telling the kiddies the story about Inspector Twiggs. The island ghost says he really likes that story. And he's embroidering a pen wiper. Crossbones on black flannel. And keeping an eye on the clock. (laughs) Everything feels really cosy, but Moomin Papa's got some sort of feeling, some premonition, some urge to go outside, even though it's really unpleasant outside. And he goes down to the beach, and there's huge waves, and the moon is shining on the sand, making it look all metallic. And on those huge waves is born a little Moomin woman with a handbag, and he rescues her he takes her up in his arms and she's like oh gosh where's my handbag and he's like all right it's all right you're holding it and she's like thank god she would never lose her handbag we don't know why she's being washed up on the shore no explanation nothing is explained (laughs) about that where are the memoirs of moving mama how did she get in the sea i know my notes no wonder moomin papa loves beachcombing so much that's how he found his wife they fall in love they live happily ever after the hero's journey is completed (laughs) with since then my follies have been supervised by her gentle and understanding eyes and thereby transformed into sense and wisdom aka the fun is over now he's gonna get married yep that is definitely the implication that moomin papa and tuve give us in that moment. So that's the end of the memoirs of Moomin Papa. But then there's an epilogue talking about what the Moomins did after Moomin Papa finished reading them his memoir. Yes. And this epilogue, I mean, everybody that is in the book turns up one night <laughs> recently after the memoirs have, have, have been finished reading to everybody. And they all meet everybody in the book. The ghost is there. 
Little yeah. Mai is there, the Mimble's daughter's there. Crucially, all the mothers are there, the fathers, the absent fathers are there. They all have a whale of a time. Yeah. Lovely little party. And then go off in the amphibian, flying off into the sky. Moomin Mama says, glad to meet you to them. Yep. But didn't she arrive on their island at the end of the last chapter of the memoirs? How has she not met them? Interesting question. Maybe they went off straight away. Maybe he was like, well... I'm never going to speak to any of my friends again now I've uh, met my wife, which is what some men do do, but they shouldn't do that. And that's why they've got no emotional support. It has the feeling of the end of a Disney or a Pixar movie where everyone who's been in the story comes back for a happy scene. It's got all of the feel-good feels, but they're not really deserved. No. (laughs) There's so many questions. So Sniff and Snufkin have never met their parents. Why? And why do they know to come now? And why are they with Hodgkins? The Mimble kept all of her other children, but not Snuffkin? Why? Why? (laughs) Why are little Mai and the Mimble's daughter basically the same age they were when we last saw them? The way I read it is that Moomin Papa just conjured them all into existence with his memoir. They didn't exist until he made them up. And now they're here in the exact form that they were in his story, which is set however many years ago. And it rewrites all of the past histories to this new idea. Yeah. Here's a really exciting thing that can make it all make narrative sense. When Moomin Papa put on the Hobgoblin's hat, it changed his brain into a magical brain that when he wrote his memoirs, the memoirs would come true. Like that house that he drew or built or both. It's the same thing to draw a thing or to build a thing, to imagine a thing or to have it happen. It's very blurry. Why do the parents leave them again after this adventure in the plane? This adventure in the plane (laughs) that we never see. Like, we never see that adventure. However, this is the origin story for why in the next book, Little Mai and the Mimble's Daughter are part of the cast. I used to think that the Moomin's books didn't have a narrative through line, that people just appeared for no reason. But now I'm reading it in chronological order. (laughs) It does have a linear development. These are narrative books. They obey the rules of narrative and they ignore the rules of narrative at the same time. Vibes-based storytelling. Vibes-based storytelling is exactly (laughs) what it is. Now we've covered the epilogue, what did we both think of the entirety of the book? I like it, but I don't like it as much as Comet and Flood. Yes, that is probably my feeling. I don't enjoy Moomin Papa's register. This is a very confusing book. It's definitely one of the stranger books. There will be more strange books. But when we get to the strange books, they're so strange that's interesting. I think there's a problem as well when you're going into a series with established characters, making a whole bunch of new characters to follow. Okay, so they're stand-ins for their sons or whatever, but they're not really people you know, and so it's harder to care. As the kids say when they're reflecting to Moomin Papa on his memoirs, we're not given enough of the characters. So I think other Moomin books have introduced new characters. But Tuve's better at introducing characters than Moomin Papa. And there's a little bit too much of that, like, people who are related to each other are automatically going to be similar thing. Yes, that is a problem I have with it. 
One of my headings is mothers, so let's talk about them. Right. We've got a few different examples of mothers and romances and relationships in the second half of this book. So first, we have the Mimble and the Jockster. The Jockster is sort of impressed by the Mimble from afar. He likes that she knows how to have fun, I think. Yeah. I mean, the Mimble is great. And it's not as sweet or clingy as the Modler and the Fuzzy. Like, they don't rush to tie the knot. They're not always seen holding hands. There's a bit more space in that relationship. And it's a bit more sexual. It's not like, it's not explicitly sexual. This is still a children's book and all of that stuff. There's more commenting on the Mimble's personal appearance and attractiveness than there is about the fuzzy. And she's got a lot of children as well. It shows she's already done some stuff. It seems like she can reproduce asexually to me. Yes, it's not clear, is it? Yeah. And then there's the Moomin Mama, Moomin Papa thing. Yeah. Which is the most ridiculous meet cute. I'm really annoyed that we don't know why she's in the sea. That that does really bother me. I we've just had a whole book of Moomin Papa windbagging around, like talking to people and like having deep thoughts. Then Moomin Mama appears in the waves in a storm. There's not even an attempt to explain that. Well, I think there's a real gap in the market here. For something like the White Sagasso Sea. There's a gap in the market for memoirs of Moomin Mama, definitely. Maybe by the end of this series, Nina will be so annoyed at the lack of representation of Moomin Mama's past life that she might write it. It's true, I might do it. I'd buy it. So these are all very heteronormative, mother and father, getting married, having babies sort of things. Although there is some diversity within the story. These are three very separate pairs of parents. I think the Mimble and the Jockster and the Fuzzy and the Muddler are slightly countercultural versions of heterosexual marriages. Yeah. Like the Muddler and the Fuzzy, they don't care about the rules. They get married before they've marriage. And the Jockster is not very active. And the Mimble is similarly like a positive representation of feckless motherhood. Yeah. If the Daily Mail wrote about the Mimble and the Jockster... Oh, they'd be really mean about them. But as the reader of this book, you think the Mimble is one of the better characters. You like her, she's enjoyable, she'd be fun to have around. Yeah. I like all of these female characters, actually, that are brought in at the very end of the book. Yes. But it's still a problem that they're not there until, like, two chapters from the end, for me. And it's interesting, though, I think there is a sea change in this book because Mm. the women who are introduced in this book, some of them will stay around. And so the reason that there's more women going forwards is this book. Yeah, it's a little bit like Ursula K. Le Guin, isn't it? And the women in her Earthsea series. Right, that's actually a very good reference. Like the first book in the Earthsea series that has a main woman is The Tombs of Atuan. But that is still a book where the woman in the story is rescued by the man who's the protagonist of the whole series. It is the woman's story, though, to be fair. It is her story, and you start with her. It's my favourite of those three books. Is it? So she finished this trilogy that is ostensibly about a man, and then she wrote Tehanu. Tehanu is really about women, and Tehanu is about a woman who was introduced as very much a sort of damsel in distress, like years ago in a previous book. And when Ursula Le Guin was asked about feminism and women in her stories, she says, Tehanu is my first real feminist book. Right. Because in Tombs of Atuan, I was still thinking of Ged, the male protagonist, 
as you know the force that moves the story forward and Tehanu was the first time that I had the women moving the story forward and she would go on to do that a lot more as well in future books and I think that that's I guess what's happening with Tuve. Yeah, I think so. That's the impression that I get from what you're saying about the future books is like this flawed book written by like a windbaggy old bloke about his exploits is still the place where we get those seeds of good representations of women later, even if it's insufficient here or imperfect. I like all of these characters that he's added. I just think I'd rather the book had been about them. Yeah, absolutely. Because my favourite of the books probably is Moominland Midwinter, which has quite a large amount of girl characters, mm-hmm. I had not really thought about the absence of girls from the books until we did this read-through. Mm. Well, you always learn things, I think, when you go through an author's work in chronological order. Like, there are things that you think, oh, this is a theme that comes and goes. You're like, oh, no, actually, there is a direct trajectory here. Yeah. There is less and then more. And there's other factors that are here that are not just there in the author's intentions. It's also mm. to do with the world of publishing and the yeah. culture around the books at the time. Like, it is true that lots of women write children's fiction with boy protagonists. And that's partly because that's easier to publish. They do it because it will sell. They yeah. do it because they're told, and there is some degree of truth in it, that we see boys as universal in a way that we don't see girls. Yeah. It would have been probably harder for the Moomin's books to get published with girl characters but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to change that in every way possible yeah going forwards so i think we have to cover the stuff about royalty monarchies and colonialisms they literally are calling themselves colonists in this i know i know there's no way you can ignore it It feels very linked to the idea of a monarchy in this, which I kind of like. It's not pro-monarchy necessarily, this book. Moomin Papa is pro-monarchy, but the book is not entirely pro-Moomin Papa. No. Calling the king an autocrat rather than a king reminds us constantly of the power dynamics going on in a way that the word king wouldn't. Yeah. And the thing about the colony is... As Snufkin might say, we don't own the world. Or as Snufkin might say in a different way, we are the monarchs ourselves of the yeah. entire world. But the idea of like going to an existing land and putting a flag on it and saying that means it's yours is ridiculous. I mean, it's the kind of ridiculousness that has caused mass death throughout history. Yeah. If you don't think about all of the death that colonialism has entailed... It's laughable. And that's the way this book treats it, that it's like a ridiculous thing to go and do. Yeah. It's lucky that there was no... I mean, there was someone there, but there was someone there who really wanted an audience. And they were dead. We don't know that the ghost was anything before it was a ghost. That's not always the case. Maybe it's always been a ghost. Yeah. So maybe we should think of ghostliness as the indigenous culture of that island. In which case, let him rattle his chains at midnight if he likes. Right, that's his island, his customs, his traditions. That's what they've been doing there before these colonialists turn up. Well, and they assimilate him. That's what they do. They go and meet the person who lives here and they're like, why don't you be part of our kingdom? We'll see if we can find you a skeleton. Like they bribe him with like stuff that they've got, material goods. And in exchange, the ghost becomes a ghost of the kingdom. Yeah, a kingdom that doesn't have its own name it doesn't seem and it's very <laughs> ill-defined yeah 
It's just crucially all about building walls that confuse yeah. the subjects. And yeah. I think that that in itself is quite a good critique of monarchy. One of the better qualities of the jockster is how much he hates walls. He hates borders, I would say. Yeah. You can say that the jockster is anti-borders. And uh, in that regard, I am with the jockster all the way. Yeah. But also, the walls aren't really for anything. They ask the Mimble's daughter when they arrive, and we must bear in mind that the Mimble's daughter gives you the most amusing answer and not the most accurate one. But she says they're not really for anything. People just like building them. The thing with the walls, one of the things that it brings up for me is the play Lear by Edward Bond, which is a reinterpretation of King Lear and a big symbol in that is this building of a wall that the king does and there being a connection between being a king owning things and the existence of walls and the other thing that it reminds me of is the song why we build a wall from the musical hades town which goes through the ways that governments use walls to control the people i started this wall when i was young I stopped my enemies in the field, but there were always more of them. How could we ever be free? So I built this wall to keep our enemies out. My people will live behind this wall when I'm dead. You may be governed by fools, but you'll always live in peace. My wall will make you free. Spoken by the character of Lear in Act 1, Scene 1 of the play Lear by Edward Bond. Why do we build the wall, my children, my children? Why do we build the wall? So even though the references to walls are quite funny in this book, I think they do contain these kind of connotations within them. Yeah. And the thing is that Moomin Papa is pro-war. Of course he is. He's pro the monarchy. He's pro-patriarchy. Yeah. 
And of course, Moomin Papa does build some walls because he builds the walls of his house. And you can't have a roof without walls. That's right. What do we have that they should want? My children, my children. What do we have that they should want? What do we have that they should want? We have a world to work upon. We have work and they have none. And our work is never done. My children, my children. And the war is never won. The enemy is poverty. And the wall keeps out the enemy. And we build the wall to keep us free. That's why we build the wall. We build the wall to keep us free. And the thing is that houses, they're not things available to everybody in the way that they should be. But it is not unreasonable to build the walls of a house to keep your children in. To keep your heat in. Walls have purposes. Yeah. It's when they become something more than just to keep you safe. But that's always the rhetoric around them. People always feel that borders are to keep us safe. Yes. You know, it's always sort of a dance with fear, I think. Absolutely. we talk about determinism we can i'm going to talk about determinism in the context of the egg hunt lottery ah yes and the idea that everyone gets exactly what they deserve from the king does the gift that was associated with the eggs that the nibbling ate even exist do you think i don't know because i don't think that the mimble's daughter's gift existed i feel like the king had an oversight and that's why he had a kiss oh you think so he's like oh i haven't got anything to give her you know kiss my head or whatever he he asks (laughs) assuming that daddy jones is all powerful and that this egg hunt has been designed perfectly which of course it haven't can't have been then surely what the nibbling deserved was to eat some eggs i guess so I mean, the thing is that it's a little bit like the way we're taught the idea of monarchy, isn't it? That the monarch is empowered by God, and so what they do is right. So whatever gift you got is right for you in a way, because it has to be. And also, this whole gift element is, again, like Moomin Papa has been cribbing from Finn Family Moomin Troll twice, because there's the beachcombed <laughs> gifts and the hobgoblins gifts. Yeah. And you could say that the hobgoblins gifts are a mixture of what people need and what people deserve. Sort of. So we can carry that through the rest of the book. Is Moomin Mama exactly what Moomin Papa deserves? A present from the sea. I don't like it. Me neither. But I wouldn't put it past Tova. (laughs) It's hard to say, isn't it? Well, yeah. The idea that you get what you deserve is, I think, a really problematic one. Very bad. Because we don't. No. (laughs) It's literally not true. It works in the egg hunt. There is sometimes attempts to establish a meritocracy to reward people for what they do like there's the idea that you need to get certain marks to go to university because in theory that should reward your work but the thing is that we know that the marks you get in exams are not a direct reflection of your work at all snufkin would probably do very badly in exams but is much more wise whereas moomin troll would probably do better because he cares about society i think he would yeah and is not i don't think as wise as snufkin also i mean as the great British philosopher Michael 
Jagger puts it, you know, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find that you get what you need. So it's actually very hard to get what you need, and it's not always possible. Even if you try, it only happens sometimes. It's very convenient for a unelected monarch to push the idea that people get what they deserve and what they're destined to because then why would you question that there's a monarch because like clearly if he's there he deserves to be there we didn't have a natural history corner last episode because uh, I was less well prepared and I didn't think that there were very many things that should go into it but we've got a bumper crop of interesting gemstones in this Half of the book. Ooh, I'm very excited. I can't tell whether Dave is being sarcastic here, listener. Write in if you know. Most of these gemstones are on the frame, the Spanish gold frame of the photograph of the Hemian and Ant in full nibbling royalty regalia. And they're all quite biblical. There's chrysolite which is also known as peridot, which you might get excited about if you're into Stephen Universe. It's used in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the armour of a priest called Aaron or Aaron. It symbolises strength and it was used in alchemy for protection and focusing and confidence. I think that's interesting because the muddler needs some confidence. It's quite a good present for him. And there is also... Topaz, which has been prized by, you know, ancient peoples forever. The Egyptians called it the sunstone. The Romans really liked it as well. It symbolises warmth and love. And then there's turquoises. In modern Europe, and modern I mean like in the last about 400 years, in England and Russia, turquoise is a kind of a token of enduring love traditionally given by chaste young women to men that they promise to love forever. So it's very wedding-y. If you're a chaste young woman out there, please consider not pledging yourself to somebody for the rest of your life. Yeah. See how it goes. But (laughs) it makes it a popular stone choice in like wedding rings and engagement rings and things like that. The best thing about this natural history corner is that Nina sent me a little picture of the natural history corner, which was very Moomins-esque. It has the words natural history corner written in Moomin Mama kind of writing. Yes, that's what I was going for. And it's got the pictures of three different gemstones. We should use a picture of that. Okay. That was it for Natural History Corner. It was mainly gemstones, but I thought that they were very well chosen for a wedding of two anxious creatures. I note that you've changed the name of uh, Natural History Corner as well, because originally it was Botany Corner, but you realised... I know, but then it's all stones. You can't include stones. I might broaden the definition even wider next time. I might say 
Nature Corner. Very two very Jansen of you, isn't it? In one book, it was one thing. The next book is another thing. Never a comment on the change. But there is because you've just commented on it. It mentions Sniff's name day because they don't know when his birthday was. Yes. Well, they only don't know when his birthday was because of the fact that the fuzzy and the muddler didn't stick around or lost him. (laughs) And the other thing I think about that is that it possibly backs up Nina's theory that Sniff was named by the Moomin family after the first book. So in the first book, he was the little creature. And in the second book, he had been named. And that's why they know his name day and celebrate his name day. Now, I don't know if this was Moomin Papa or the Mimble's daughter who said this quote, but I loved it. So I wanted to read it out. When I exaggerate, I even fool myself. (laughs) That is so relatable. I have done that on this podcast. We have often cut it out, but we won't have cut it everywhere. I've done it as well, definitely. Would you like to introduce our question for Snuffkin this week? This week, the guest that may happen in the future who submitted this question is Helen Zoltzman. And the question is a very excellent and incredibly hard to answer question now helen unlike last week's question submitter is familiar with the moomins and so she appears to have designed this question specifically to break snufkin's brain which we like or at least our brains when trying to imagine (laughs) ourselves to be snufkin so the question for snufkin from helen zoltzman is when you were a baby you acquired a hat that you still have in adulthood and it fits your head but you don't like it It doesn't suit you. However, it's a perfectly functional hat and an heirloom. Do you keep the hat and wear it or find a new hat that will probably require engaging in capitalistic processes, which perhaps will suit you no better than the first hat? What would Snufkin do? Helen, (laughs) what what are you doing to poor Snufkin? He loves his hat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Snufkin can assume that this is not him. I mean, I think... I don't know. It's phrased in a way to suggest that it is. It definitely is. Helen couldn't remember where Snufkin got his hat. And so when she says in that heirloom, question mark, it's because she's not sure if his hat was an heirloom. I expect it was found in the basket with him on the river. Well, first of all, it depends on if he was found in a basket or if he was one of the Mimble's children who somehow got lost. Well... Could the Mimble have put him in the basket? Whoa. That means it does make continuity sense, it doesn't it? It could make continuity sense. In which case, the Mimble would have given him his hat. Maybe the Mimble gave him the Jockster's hat. Or maybe the Jockster put him in the basket. No, because in the picture where the Jockster is hugging Snufkin, they're both wearing hats. But the Jockster could have a new hat. The Jockster could have Hobgoblin style taken off his hat, given it to his son and then bought a new hat yeah which would be an old hat by the time he meets snufkin because he has been absent for all of snufkin's childhood yes okay so assuming that the hat came from the jockster then it isn't heirloom yeah i wasn't expecting this question to actually help us to make a canon out of this very hard to make canon series of books 
The question about whether it suits him or not. I guess we're so used to seeing it on him. What does suiting mean? If somebody wears something all the time, does that mean that it suits them because it becomes your internal image of them? And I feel like what we get from Snufkin is that he does feel that his own hat suits him. Yeah. He never loses his hat when he falls anywhere or any adventure happens. Because it perfectly fits his head. And he holds on to it sometimes too. And that means he cares for That's it. true. But in the spirit of the question, we have to believe Helen that the hat doesn't suit the person the question is about. The way I imagine this question is that Helen has a hat <laughs> from when she was a baby that still fits her, but looks like a literal baby's hat. And so she feels self-conscious walking out of the house with the literal baby's hat on her head. If it still fits her, then it's a stretchy hat, right? It's like a bobble hat or something. Right. It's possible that this is proper life advice for Helen. Okay. And she needs to know what to do about her baby hat that she feels obliged <laughs> to wear in the winter because it keeps her warm despite it having no style. Well, <laughs> then I would suggest, Helen, that you find another hat and put it over the first hat. Do some hat layering. So then nobody else has to see the stretched out baby hat that's keeping your head warm. But then you could have something else over the top of it that looks stylish, whatever your tastes are. A top hat, a headscarf. The thing I do know about Helen, though, is that Helen already, like the ghost in the island in the story, already has a skill that could easily be put to use with this hat. Oh, can Helen knit? She's very good at crafts in general. She does a lot of patchwork. Okay, Helen, here's what you do. You take the baby hat, you chop it up, <laughs> and then you incorporate it into a new hat, a la Howl's suit in Howl's Moving Castle. You use the old bits in a new thing, and then you're honouring the heirloom quality of the hat while making it something that actually suits you. I think that's a great answer, but it's a Nina answer. Is it a Snufkin answer? <sighs> Snufkin wouldn't go to that amount of trouble. Snufkin would say, I reckon, that if your hat still fits you there's no reason to get rid of it yeah but i don't agree with snufkin on this it doesn't matter okay okay but he would also say if you don't like wearing your hat there's no reason to keep it you don't have to now the hat have a clearly wants a hat to keep them warm but they don't want to involve themselves in the capitalistic processes of spending money. Snufkin can help them there. Well, first of all, you can pass the baby hat down to a different baby. You could swap that hat for another hat. That's not yeah. capitalistic. That's a slightly more barter system. But I think that Snufkin would say, find a hat. Yeah. He wouldn't say buy one, like they found their stilts in Comet and Moominland. Go around the world with your tent and look for a hat. If you can't find a hat, Tell yourself a story, sing yourself a song, <laughs> and maybe a hat will appear. That's right. Thank you, Helen. That was a really good question. So now we've done What Would Snufkin Do? The next segment of our show is The Spirit of the Moomins. This week, Nina is going to go first in recommending the text that she feels is in the spirit of the Moomins. I had a really hard time finding my spirit of the Moomins text this week, but I'm really proud of myself because I found one that I think fits perfectly. It is a fictional memoir of the father of a more famous fictional son. It's called The Swallowed Man, and it's by Edward Carey, 
and it is the memoir of Geppetto, father of Pinocchio, as written from within the whale. Wow. It's got lots of things in common with the Moomins. It's not a kid's book, by the way, I will tell you that now. It's a like short little novella. It's very self-aggrandizing. Geppetto is very interested in becoming rich and famous because he's created Pinocchio. He starts by telling us that he's in the belly of the whale, and then he tells us about how he created Pinocchio. But canonically, he only spends like three days with Pinocchio. So then he runs out of Pinocchio stuff to say, and he tells us about his upbringing and his relationship with his father and how that affected how then he was with Pinocchio and what makes a person proud of a son and what it's like to be a dad. There's also a bit about going bald, like the Snork Maiden in the last book, and there's even a seaweed wig, (laughs) like what the Snork Maiden did. I bet that he's not treated as badly in that. he's quite ridiculous in the same way that moomin papa in this book you're meant to think of him as quite ridiculous there's good illustrations in it and there's also photographs of sculptures that are made by geppetto in the belly of the whale from whatever he was able to find and we know that pinocchio is an influence on Tuve anson's books and it's also kind of an example of what we were talking about that we want for moomin mama like yeah. a character that is covered by a later author yeah yeah, the thing that's challenging us at the moment for our Spirit of the Moomins is the memoir theme. Yeah, what's yours? My Spirit of the Moomin this week is a non-fiction book. Okay. So this is a book that I am halfway through, but that is absolutely appropriate for this book because this book is called A Spell in the Wild, A Year and Six Centuries of Magic. And it's by Alice Tarbuck, who is oh, cool. a great witch-adjacent writer, author, poet. And this is a book about magic and witchcraft that has such a Moomin's vibe going on. For a start, it's a year. So it's seasonal. It it references lots of uh, pop cultural references to communicate ideas about magic. And they include Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but also The Wind in the Willows. You don't have to believe in witchcraft to enjoy this book. You just have to be a little bit open to the possibility. It's not a book about why you should go out and live in the countryside to be a witch. Oh, good. It's about finding the magic where you are. Mm -hmm. And I'm loving it. I'm quite witch adjacent myself. Have you done any magic out of it yet? Not quite yet, but I'm going to get myself an altar and start thinking about that. Great. It's a memoir too. It's It's right. got lots of her own experiences. And so that's another reason it fits here. Oh, good shout. The last segment of our show is where we take it in turns to recommend another podcast that has something of the spirit of the pod goblins hat about it and this week it is nina's turn these two weeks last week and this week we're doing the self-indulgent thing because we're reading the self-indulgent book uh so last week you plugged your podcast this week i'm gonna plug my podcast i really think if you like this podcast you'll like my other one because it's very similar (laughs) In some ways, if you like me talking about kids' books, my other podcast, Even the Trunchbull, with my friend Matt, is also me talking about kids' books. It's less focused, so you'll get a bigger variety of books. Every episode, we cover a chapter book and a picture book together, and they'll be thematically linked. We have covered The Moomins once. I was a guest on that episode. We've also covered Wind in the Willows, which you've mentioned. And we've covered a retelling of Pinocchio, which is also... I would say a good episode to start with, which is called Puppet Pals. 
I don't know what else to say about it. So even the Trench Ball is a very excellent show. I can co-sign that. And I would say that if you're a fan of this show, if you enjoy the dynamic between me and Nina, you will probably also enjoy the dynamic between Nina and Matt. Certainly Nina likes to choose a non-binary (laughs) co-host to do her podcast (laughs) work with. If you like a podcast hosted by a cis woman and a non-binary person... (laughs) And the cis woman is me. Have I got the podcast for you? <laughs> Thanks, Dave. So that's all for episode eight. Next week, we'll be reading the first half of Moomin Summer Madness. And here are the tiny cliffhangers for that episode. What happens? When the Moomins have to deal with another flood. What happens when Snufkin has to deal with a park keeper? And what sort of theatre production would Moomins create? Until next time, don't hide your light under a bushel unless there's a sea hound coming after you. Bye! Bye! <laughs>